when I uh, told Janet this week what I was going to be speaking on, uh, I'm not making this up, she said, that is really going to be boring. <laughs> so I, I used to have Janet actually read through, you know, my sermons before I would give them, and then my ego couldn't take it anymore, so I stopped doing that a couple years ago. <laughs> But I suppose when you hear the topic today, it's going to be like, are you serious? We have uh, been considering going to a third service uh, for a period of time. The, the elders and I, have, we've been praying about it, we just kind of put the brakes on it. And the reason is this, is that our goal and our intent as a body of Christ is not to see how many people we can pack into a room. That's not our goal. Uh, we feel like that God has given us a mandate to make disciples, to make sure that uh, we are in good health, spiritually speaking. And so we feel like that we need to shore some things up before we even think about going to a third service if God so brings us to that point. Numerically, we are at that point. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and I was telling him about this. He's going, dude, just do it. And I'm like, eh, you know, I'm just really not sure whether that would be a smart move for us. And at some point, that may be in the future. But we're going to talk about membership today. You say, what? I think it's an important point to consider regarding the discipleship process. And instead of using the term, there's not a better word to use. I suppose there is. I don't know. You could use ownership or... But the concept is really committing ourselves to a local body. That's really what this is about today. Before we actually talk about it, take a look at this video. Church membership is a great way to show your commitment to your church body. It is also a wonderful way to take advantage of all that membership has to offer, such as coupons, good for one free communion with the purchase of a communion of equal or greater value, and a coupon to upgrade a standard baptism to a super deluxe bubble baptism at no additional cost. Also, before you commit, try to negotiate a private parking spot close to the sanctuary. That way you won't have to look for a spot every week like a non-member. Because church membership is all about what the church can do for you. These have been Deep Thoughts from a Shallow Christian. Those are always a little dangerous to show because I'm afraid some people think, do they really think that? <laughs> Especially if you're visiting. You know, I have done a great number of weddings in the past 20 years or so, and there are two elements that have been in every wedding that I have done. Now, there have been some elements that have not transferred. You know, sometimes, you know, couples will want to communicate a spiritual truth and will do like a unity candle, or some might choose to do uh, pour different colors of sand, you know, in a large jar. Have you seen that done? Uh, some couples will include music. Some ceremonies will have no music. Some may have attendance. I've done other weddings where it's just been the, the bride and groom alone. Uh, some weddings feature tuxes and rented shoes, and others I've done in short sleeves barefoot. Um, some ceremonies have been done in a barn or in a church or outside or on a porch, or I did one, which I hope to do more of these on a beach in Hawaii. That was nice. 
Uh, some lasted maybe five minutes. I did one wedding that lasted about 90 minutes to two hours because the guy I co-officiated with talked for an hour. Oh, that was brutal. But there are two things that are always in every wedding that I've ever conducted. In every wedding that I've witnessed, I've seen this take place. And that is that there is some type of vows that are, that's V-O-W-S, <laughs> that are exchanged between the couple, and there is exchanging of rings. Every wedding I've done, those two things have been in place. There's been a common confession from the couple, and then there was a tangible expression of that covenant that they made with one another. Now, the vows, I would argue, from a biblical standpoint, they're essential. In fact, the Bible says in Malachi that a couple is married because of the covenant that they make. They're not married because they're together physically. They're not married because the gal walks in white and walks down an aisle inside a church building. They are married because they publicly make this covenant in three parties, man, woman, Got to say that today. Man, woman, and God. Three parties in this covenant that are being made. And the rings are a physical expression of these vows. It's a, it's a sign of the commitment that a couple is making. Now, are you married if you don't have rings? Of course. But there still has to be some kind of tangible expression to that covenant to express your commitment in marriage. Now, we use a cultural designation of a ring, but certainly more important is the expression of the responsibilities that we hold as, as a couple, right? You know, that I'm going to, I'm going to protect my wife and, uh, you know, we're going to love one another, we're going to cherish our intimacy together, those kinds of things. So there is a covenant, an expression of a, of a promise that we make, and then there is an outward expression of that covenant for the marriage to prosper and be healthy. Okay? Understand that? Taking that, apply that to the church. And I want to submit to you that any healthy church has to have those two things. It has to have a covenant that we understand that we are committed to, a relationship between the believer and other believers and God, and there has to be some kind of tangible expression of that commitment. I read an article recently that was entitled, The Ironic World of Hipster Faith. What happens when cool meets Christ? That was the title. And the article elaborated on the fact that today's Christian hipster to retain their faith, they want to be compatible with, not contrary to, uh, to, secular hipster counterculture. All right? Uh, in typical uh, hipster fashion, they basically reject the corporate mentality of the megachurch and what they call the McMansion evangelicalism. They long for a simpler faith that is all about serving the poor instead of serving Starbucks in the church foyer. Spirituality over religion, organism 
over-organization, any hint of organization, these are the popular sentiments. Now, the end result for this crowd that's usually about 35 and under, which describes us by and large, okay, is a unchackling from the organized church, which is deemed out of touch, unhip, and self-serving. To which many of you probably, if you could, you'd want to say, amen, yeah. But in the end, external, traditional expressions are taboo, especially if associated with the organized church. Really, all that's needed for these people I've just described is any experience with God and then, you know, occasional couch talk in a living room as we sip our lattes with our friends. And that's about as committed as it gets. And please do not intrude on my space with calls from the organized church. I have no room for that. No desire to be a part. And if you think I am overstating the problem, you have no comprehension to what is really going on. I mean, we're talking people who are really passionate about this, who call themselves Christians. Now, these next few weeks, I'm going to be doing a series called What's the Big Deal? And dealing with issues related to church life and try to define for us some basic expectations as a church. Now, the elders have asked me to do this, but I want you to understand I do this willingly, all right? Uh, and there are a couple reasons for this. And the first is that we cannot help but be influenced by what I've just described. All of us are influenced by it. And the second is, is that we've had a whole bevy of new people within the last 12 months come to our church, mostly young people. And we feel it's important to be very clear and define about where it is we're headed, what we're about, and what is expected. I want to start by reading a little quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And this is something that he said when he referred to the local church, that it's the dearest place on earth. I think if you ask a lot of Christians if they could agree with that statement, they'd probably say, you know, I wish that was the case, but it's really not. I want it to be that way, but it's certainly not been my experience. I concur with Spurgeon that it's the dearest place on earth. Listen, if you're hoping today that I'm going to take some pot shots at the church, which frankly I'm prone to do because I have a cynical streak, and that we ought to just blow it all up and start over, you're going to be disappointed. All right? That's not what I'm going to be doing. The church, can we not all agree with this? Start from this base foundation level. The church is the bride of Christ. And you don't talk about my wife. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I can take a lot of shots at me. People start talking about my wife and kids. The guns come out, baby. Well, you know what I'm talking about. We get really defensive, don't we, about the things that we hold to very dear? It's the bride of Christ. You know, the number one reason we ought to be supportive of the church is that Jesus died for the church, Jesus loves the church, and Jesus is passionate about the church. 
Can there be any disagreement with that? No. And it would seem to me to be a very queer idea that we despise what it is that Jesus loves. Would it not? Now listen, I don't think the church is perfect. And I don't believe in putting our head in the sand when it comes to problems. We ought to talk openly about them and we deal with them. I'm all for that. But I love the bride. And I will do whatever I can to make the bride healthy and fruitful. Listen, Christians who are fierce critics of the church and very cynical, the way I see it, there's only, and by the way, since I'm the one talking, I guess you're going to get the way I see it, three options you have. First is to leave the church altogether. You know, hey, I have a personal faith in Christ. I'm not going to join any church, be committed to any church. They're all hypocrites. I've had enough of that. Just leave it all together. A huge amount of people like that. Huge amount. The second option is to view the traditional congregational life of the church as useless. But apt for some kind of self-prescribed option that basically guts the church from its biblical mandates. Including things like church discipline and the ordinances. I just want to get together, hug, sing kumbaya. There's the church. That's another option. The third option is seek to apply biblical principles to improve congregational life. Be a part of the team. Be a part of the solution. Now, I challenge you. If you are a serious disciple of Jesus Christ, how can there be but just one of those options? I don't see any other option. Seriously. I mean, if, 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 if I have a church that's available, and I understand, you may live in some far off country and there's no local church available. God knows that situation. I'm sure he'll be able to bless them, but certainly here in Springfield, Missouri, this is churchdom. This is the buckle of the Bible Belt. We've got to be able to at least find one that's living, breathing, where I can be active. You're saying, we've tried a dozen already. Haven't found one yet. The unattached believer fancies himself or herself somehow of being a part of the universal church, but not of the local church. Kind of like Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. I'm never going to let the cat out of the bag. Charles Spurgeon also said this. I know there are some who say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. What's a brick made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking around on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for the injury you do. Now, maybe churches avoid talk like this, a membership, because 
we're afraid that's just so unpopular. I mean, let's face it. You start talking about accountability and commitment and the crowd's thin. If you're talking about a way to divide a church, a way to get people out of the church, be talking about discipleship, commitment, accountability. Same thing happened in the life of Jesus, did it not? As he ratcheted up the talk of discipleship, the crowds waned. And in the end, there were two. His mom was one of them. I want to build a case before you why membership is important in the body of Christ. And again, maybe we're just talking about committed participation might be another way of saying it. You know, what I believe what happens often is that when we talk about this is that to avoid offending people, we leave the front door wide open with little talk about commitment. And you know what happens is that it leaves the back door wide open as well because people have little or no understanding of the mission of the church and our responsibilities in the body of Christ. I know this seems self-serving, right? I mean, here I am the pastor of the church, of the organization I'm talking about. And I'm probably disqualified, you may think, from speaking on this issue. But following that logic, what that means is my wife can never approach me about the state of our marriage. Isn't it self-serving for her to address it since she's benefiting from it? Or we can never have a boss address how we can improve the workplace because isn't that self-serving? I'm not sure that logically follows. Who better to address the church than a person who loves the church and is genuinely concerned for its welfare? Now listen, if I don't speak objectively and if I don't speak truth, throw it out. Talk to me about it. I'll be glad to have whatever discussion you want. But I invite you to test what it is I'm about to say up against the word of God. I hope by the time I'm done, you can agree that it wasn't quite as boring as what we thought it would be, but that also that the church is indeed the dearest place on earth. I firmly believe that. And I'm going to give my total being to maximize her health and effectiveness. These are noble tasks, and I don't believe there's a more valuable task for us to be a part of than the church's mission. Now, I've only got one point I'm going to cover today because, believe it or not, there's so much to this as I began to just study it and look at it. I'm like, whoa. Um, I kind of got excited about it. Here's the, here's the first point. Membership identifies believers for the mission of the body of Christ. I read one authority who was from the largest denomination in America, and basically he said this. He said that in our denomination, people have to do nothing to be a part of it. Nothing. Interesting. He went on to say that when church membership means nothing, our corporate witness lacks credibility. See, membership brings definition and clarity to what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And listen, the first order of business for us as a body is to make sure that those who align with the church are indeed believers in Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it make sense we want to make sure that anybody that we put forward as a teacher or participant, that they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they affirm the truths of the gospel, they're, they're at least on the same page, that they're on the same team. Can you imagine having somebody T 
teach? Who's not even a believer? Who doesn't even believe the word of God? How do you check that? See, church membership signifies a church's corporate endorsement of a person's salvation. If we believe that only generally converted Christians are to be members of the local church, then it makes sense to just take time to see if there's fruit, to take time to at least hear a person's testimony, to hear them describe how they came to know Christ, that they're genuine in that faith. Now listen, you may not be at that point yet, and you are welcome to visit here as long as you want. But I'm saying to, to join up and say, this is my church, I want to be a part of this, I want to participate in this. A church is a conglomeration of people who are believers in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And Paul did not hesitate to challenge members of the church at Corinth, who, by the way, were rife with problems. And he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. He also wrote in Ephesians 2.19, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, as members of God's household, there are ways that we can express that tangibly. And you know, the Bible gives us ordinances in order to express that this is, we're, we're part of the team. And, you know, one of those ordinances we call baptism. Now, we aren't, we aren't baptized to be on the team. We're not baptized to become a Christian. It's something you do once you've come to faith in Christ. Baptism identifies us with the truths of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That, yes, I'm not ashamed to be a Christian. I'm identifying myself with the work of Christ. That's what baptism does. And then another ordinance is the Lord's Supper. It's a way that we can celebrate the spiritual unity that we enjoy, the very act that enjoins our hearts together, that we are a spiritual family. We are a, a, a oikos, it says in the Greek, a household. Now, when you add to this church discipline, you can quickly see how a church distinguishes itself from any parachurch organization or just a maybe a small group Bible study, which is fine. Those are great. But it's not a church. You know, there's an interesting scenario in Nehemiah, verse, uh, chapters 8 through 10. You might remember the story of Nehemiah where he was called by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that had come into years of disrepair. And Israel had basically fallen away from God. Jerusalem was extremely vulnerable because the walls in Jerusalem had, you know, people could get through. So Nehemiah wanted to rebuild these walls. And there's a situation there when after they had done this work, Ezra stands before the people, he's a priest, in celebration. And then in, in chapter 9, the people are reciting this, this litany of, of things that they had repented of. They enumerated their failures. And then to show the reality of their repentance, the passage talks about them having a binding agreement together, putting it in writing, it says, to be signed by the leaders, the Levites, and a priest, affirmed by the people. And then this agreement or this covenant 
involved promises of, of conduct that they would have as a believing community and, and being a distinct people of God from all the other people around. And listen to this. Here's the last phrase of chapter 10. It summarizes. It says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Even in the Old Testament, there's a record of the faith community coming together and agreeing of signing a pact, if you will. We're going to be committed to this. Psalm 26, 8 through 12 says, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of our house, of your house, and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. You know, this idea of experiencing salvation without belonging to a local church is completely foreign to the New Testament record. I'll say it again. The idea of being a believer in Jesus Christ and not being committed to a local assembly of believers is completely foreign to the New Testament. When individuals repented of their sin and believed in Christ, they were baptized and added to the church. More than simply living out some private commitment to Christ, this meant joining together formally with other believers in a local assembly, devoting themselves, as Acts 2 says, to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. In fact, we find in 1 Timothy 5, you might remember when Paul was talking about the widows and how to care for the widows, and he talked about the qualifications for widows to be put. He said, on a list there in 1 Timothy 5, to be eligible for financial support. Well, to even be able to separate widows from the rest of the congregation suggests that they kept records, some kind of recognition of who was a part, who was on the team. And when Luke refers in Acts to 3,000 being added to the church, it would seem odd that a definite number of people was added to an indefinite number, as if no members were recognizable. In fact, when a believer moved to another city, his church often wrote a letter commending him to his new church, as with Apollos. Acts 18.27, it says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. In 1 Corinthians 14.23, it says, If the whole church comes together in one place. Now, how would leaders know if the whole church was in place unless there was no formal kind of relationship established? How would they even know that? They had to be able to identify these people somehow, some way. You remember the uh, quick end to Ananias and Sapphira when they were knocked dead for lying? Remember that in Acts 5? And it says of the unbelievers there that they dared join them. In other words, they didn't want to do this, but they still highly esteem the people. Because you get knocked dead if you join the church and you lie. <laughs> not sure I'm up to that standard. They were scared to death. Now, I'm not suggesting that when the Bible uses the word join, that that means exactly how membership is used to I'm not making that claim. 
I simply want us to acknowledge that there was a recognizable affiliation with a local body. Right? There was a commitment that an individual made to be a part of this place. I think the idea that we get that in the New Testament, you know, uh, the the Christians were just loosey-goosey, I'll just wait on the Holy Spirit to speak to me before I do something. No organization, no authority structure. That's simply not the case. There is organism and organization. The organization serves the health of the organism, the body of Christ, right? But you cannot have a healthy organism without organization. It's chaos without any kind of organization. And the, org- the organization can often overburden the organism to where it's unhealthy. I get that. Have you not noticed that we run a very skinny ship here? Have you not noticed that we don't have a lot of programs? Did you know that that's by design? I do not see myself as, you know, hearing the message from above, giving to the little people the programs we need to run. I say that in jest, right? That's not the way it is. I am not the program maestro. I'm given particular responsibilities as a pastor, but, you know, if, if God leads you to do something... We want to get behind you and help you do it. But you are not here to just help the machine run. You know what I'm saying? We're not here to just create programs. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit can lead you just as much as he leads me. That's not just talk. That's fact. Right? That doesn't mean there's not leadership or accountability. I get that. But he can lead you just as much as me. And you know what? I I think we need this uh, deal to, 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 to feed the poor. Man, that's awesome. Go for it. What can we do to help you? This idea that the church is without any organization and that we can do it without any kind of commitment, that's completely foreign. We are dealing with a cultural reality that guts the church. Can we acknowledge that? The cultural reality of how we view the spiritual life disconnected from the believing community, disconnected from any authority, disconnected from any accountability, disconnected from any real fellowship as the Bible defines it. Now look, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are sitting here in a church facility. I acknowledge that. We got to at least have a basic understanding and a foundation to start with. So I believe God calls every believer to be a part of an identifiable body of believers to accomplish its mission. And here at CCC, our mission is simply stated, a Christ-dependent community equipping people to impact their world. We have a very extended explanation of all that that means. You can look on our website at cccspringfield.org, and it'll tell you what we mean by all that. I don't have time to go through it right now. We are bound together by spiritual realities in Christ. And by a common covenant and a local expression of that body called Christ Community Church. There is no such thing. If I'm wrong in this, show me. I don't believe there's any such thing as a committed, faithful disciple who is uncommitted to a local assembly. 
It's like saying, you know, I'm committed to my marriage, but I'm never there. I'm a committed dad. I'm a committed husband. Actually, I lived that life once in my 20s, working 80 hours a week, trying to get a business going. Never there. Trust me, it's not healthy. Not for me or the family. And if it wasn't for a God-fearing woman who stayed with it and loved the thing that called itself a husband, we probably wouldn't even be married. You ask, well, what can, I, what can I do? Where do I begin? How do I just start with this commitment? I want to make it as simple as possible. First, consider yourself, am I a believer in Jesus Christ? And what can I do to be a functioning, healthy, committed member of this body? Is that not a fair thing to ask? I use the word member just because I think we understand what that means as, as, as a committed person to this. But we have a discovery class, a membership class to help people and explain more about what that's like. And by the way, that's going to start Wednesday. If you want to be a part, sign up on the sheet out there. Uh, there's another thing you can do. You can get baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. I am absolutely amazed at the number of people who have claimed to be followers of Christ and they have never been baptized. Now, some I think are confused, but I've met others who just don't want. And you know, you know the reason I've gotten from several people? Because I don't want to be a part of the church thing. What is that? I'll tell you what that is. That's one screwed up believer who doesn't understand their responsibilities. Baptism was commanded by Christ, modeled by Christ. Now, there are some who have come about this not being baptized, honestly. I understand that. And there are many people like that. But there are some that do it just more in rebellion because I don't want to submit to anything that the church tells me I have to do. There's a third thing. And by the way, we're going to have a baptism in a couple weeks outside. You sign up on the back table if you want to be baptized, if you've never been baptized. If you have been baptized before, great. As a believer, we recognize that. No big deal. What well, is a big deal? But we don't, we don't say you have to be re-baptized to be a part of this church. We're not into that. Thirdly, as a, uh, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can also partake in communion. Partake of communion. This is a viable, external way that we express our union, our spiritual union that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to do this that will remember him. He wants us to do this that will remember the implications of his work. What it means for us as a people. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.